Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Tube to Table podcast, Better Together, Creating Responsive Family Mealtimes. In this episode, Heidi and I, I'm Jenny, are going to talk a little bit about how to do just that, how to create healthy and responsive family mealtimes. And obviously, this is a podcast about tube-fed kids and getting them off their tubes and transitioning to oral eating. But the principles that we're going to talk about today regarding these family mealtimes are really applicable to any family that has children at the table. So just kind of keep that in mind as you're thinking about some of these principles. I know I always, as a parent, (laughs) benefit from kind of getting back to these basics. It's a good reminder. So hopefully, it'll be helpful for you and your tube-fed kids and then any other kids in your family or life. So the first thing I thought we could do today is talk a little bit about what responsive mealtimes are. And responsive mealtimes are mealtimes that encourage attachment or togetherness between family members that allow or facilitate a child to develop self-regulation or regulate how much food they take in in response to their own body's needs. And responsive family mealtimes are known to set the stage for a lifelong of kind of healthy relationships with food throughout the lifespan. So the family table is a really important place to kind of pay a little bit of attention and see if we can make some improvements because we know what happens there kind of sets the stage later in life. So I thought maybe just by getting started, it might be helpful to go through a little bit of who is supposed to be doing what at the table. So Heidi, would you mind talking a little bit about our favorite topic, (laughs) one of our favorite (laughs) topics anyways, the division of responsibility? Sure. So one of the basic foundational pieces, I think that's always easy to start with is called the Division of Responsibility, which was developed by Ellen Satter, who's nutritionist. And at its most basic, it means that the parents get to decide where you're eating and what time you're eating and what you're eating, who you're eating with. (laughs) And the kids get to decide if they're going to eat what's served and how much. So at the beginning, that sounds really simple. And we all know that things get more complex as we go. And there's a couple of layers to unpack with that. That means that the parents really need to pay attention to what the kids are capable of. If you know your kid has a hard time chewing, then expecting them to eat steak is probably a little unrealistic. So it means keeping track of what's safe and acceptable for the kid. But that doesn't mean you turn into a short order cook and all you're doing is eating what the kids like and enjoy. So it's really a balance. And part of responsive parenting is walking that line. And it's a little gray of making sure that you're making things safe for your kids, but not turning yourself into a a waiter or a short order cook. Yeah. And Um, I, I love that as a mom too, I love the division of responsibility. It helps me a lot because I think when we're talking about creating healthy eaters or taking the pressure off kids, there's so much like noise out there culturally. And we are learning so much about the right way to do things all the time, all the way from the food we eat and what's in it to what we talk about a lot, which is the right way to go about approaching food in your family. So if we're trying to help a child have a positive association with food, 
that doesn't mean that we lose our role as parents, as the head of the table, if you will, or as kind of the the people that are in charge. So we kind of keep our roles as moms and dads as deciding what flies at our table. The only thing that we don't decide is what goes in kids' mouths and how much of it goes in. And that kind of gets back to that point that you make, Heidi, in some of the blog posts that you've written, which is that what happens to kids' bodies is super important. And making sure that that's protected and sacred and not kind of making sure that that's treated with respect is kind of everybody's job. So that's a really a nice balance, I think, in the division of responsibilities. Kids keep that autonomy about that, that real kind of body, you know, what goes in their bodies. And then parents keep the autonomy. You can still have rules at your table. It's okay. Just the rules shouldn't be about what goes in your kid's mouth. That's all. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things going through that that's always been helpful for me is saying when kids are refusing and parents get caught in this trap of, am I leaving the idea of creating a positive association with food by supporting these rules and, you know, go through, is this an acceptable food? Have they had it before? Can they do it? Then, then you're in a good place with that. And it's okay to reinforce what you decided to serve that day. Totally. And just a quick note about tube fed kids. So a lot of you guys that are listening are probably like, well, my kid's not eating. And so that might mean that they're sitting at the table and participating in everything else that a mealtime is, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but not putting food in their mouth. And that's not easy. We realize we're not saying like it's this great paradigm that's helpful, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. And we get that, but you're doing it right if you're not pressuring, you know, your kid to eat and you're not controlling how much they're eating at the table. Those are your two main jobs. And so it's okay if the answer to their job is zero right now. That's okay. In fact, it's going to build a positive foundation. And just the final note as we wrap that up is we've been in so many kids' homes and we completely understand the frustration and the feeling that it's not working because your kids aren't putting anything in their mouth yet. We've been there, so we totally understand that. But just know that this is not the answer alone and that this is a foundation and there are some directions to go from here if all you're doing is creating this responsive foundation. Totally. The quality now leads to quantity and balance later. Mm -hmm. So one thing that people report back to us to get into this kind of second point about responsive family mealtimes is when you're concerned about what somebody's eating or what they're not eating, it's really hard to not talk about it all the time. And so we like to remind people that Just think about yourself out to dinner. I think we mentioned this in another post with someone you love. And you're not going to talk 80% of the time or more about food. You might say, oh, gosh, this is really good or this doesn't taste very well or, you know, whatever you're going to say. It might be a little bit about the food. But generally, you're sitting in a mealtime engaging in other conversation. And so I always like to give people a little bit of... Uh, sometimes mealtimes can feel like this abyss when there's stress around them. So I always tell people 20% max of the conversation should be about food and feeding. And none of it should be about people's bodies, <laughs> their body sizes, what they're eating, what they're choosing to eat and how much they're choosing to eat. But try to remember that there's the, the mealtime, the family table is where we're supposed to talk about other stuff. It's supposed to be where we talk about our days and our worries and our excitement and our successes. It's not necessarily where we're supposed to talk about the food and taking bites and all of that jazz that tends to happen when there's stress involved. Well, and not everybody is a preschool teacher. Right. You know, not everybody is is prepared to be a kid conversationalist. And we've actually found sometimes I refer back to it myself. There's a bunch of links out there and ideas about there about conversations and just thinking about 
you know, vacations that you've done or what you did with your day. There's a lot of different ideas on how to start conversations with kids. If you get a little stuck there and feel like you can't think of anything other than the food. And I think we did post in our social media last week, an interview of parents and who they would most like to have dinner with and kids on who they would most like to have dinner with. And the parents thought of all these famous people and the kids said their parents. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you need to be entertainers. They just want to be with you. Right. And just a pleasant, supportive family presence is enough for your kids. You don't need to compete with movies and TV and all those other things. Remember that time with you is valuable. Yeah. And we'll link to, I mean, that's going to, you can find that in our Instagram at thrive with SP on Instagram, but then also we'll link to some of the conversation starter tips again. And then I just have one that we do at my family is like, we pick a color and then we talk about things that happened in our day that had to do with the color. So like if the color is yellow, somebody might say that they saw three school buses in the parking lot. And then somebody else might say they had a banana for snack. And sometimes there's crickets and nobody wants to talk about the color. <laughs> so that's why it's helpful to, re- to remember that there's resources out there if you do get stuck. And it's okay for the adults to have their own conversation. And silence isn't the worst thing in the world, although it can be hard if you're worried about your little eaters. So just check out the show notes on our blog after the show for some reminders. And another kind of tip about conversations is it can be helpful to just save some of the words that you have, like if, if you have something exciting happen in your day, try to remind yourself too. Like that's another one that I try to do is like, I try to write down, I saw the street sweeper. My kid's super into, my littlest is super into vehicles right now. And I saw the street sweeper on the way to the grocery store. So I had to like, remember like to tell them that, which is like big news in our house. So kind of as the adult too, you know, they might not know how to start those conversations. Just started kind of a little running topic <laughs> note, of, you know, mental notes for yourself throughout the day of things that you can talk about if mealtimes are hard. And then, uh, go ahead. Jenny, can I just add one final note yeah. with that? And this, I was saw something the other day about the impact of electronics at the table. And the minute the phones come out, there's a lot of information out there. And it happens to my, to me too. When someone brings out the phone, I realize they're not paying attention to mm-hmm. me anymore. Mm-hmm. So family meal times are not the time to have your phone at the table. Mm-hmm. And I know we're all guilty of it. Sometimes I'm just going to check the weather, yeah. whatever, but it really does disrupt all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and kids can feel when your attention is shifting away from them to something else. Right. And, and that that's disappointing to them. And um, it, it doesn't create that. Um, environment of togetherness. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. Good reminder. So we've talked a little bit about the divisions, the division of responsibility, the roles and responsibilities of mealtimes, conversation traps, and some tips will be in the show notes. And then another really key point is that we don't want to pressure people to eat or not eat, to eat too little or to eat too much. We want to let them tune into what their body is telling them they need, even if in the beginning it might not be telling them exactly what you want it to tell them. So we want to minimize pressure. And so the most obvious version of that is not telling people to take more bites, not telling people to finish their plate, not, you know, giving cues about opening your mouth wide. Really those things that most of us grew up hearing, (laughs) to be frank, what we know now is that pressure 
shuts off a kid's ability to listen to their own body. And their ability to listen to their own body and develop self-regulation is protective across the lifespan. It gives them protection and decreased risk of things, or it's correlated with decreased risk of really serious health conditions and certainly complicated feeding relationships later in life. So while that might kind of be, kind of be in our baggage that we have to unpack as the adults at the table, it really doesn't help to encourage kids to do things like take another bite, finish their plate, those things backfire. And then there's this other piece of pressure that's a little bit hidden. And Heidi, you read a really great blog post that I love about this, which is praise and how praise can be disguised as pressure. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a feeding therapist at the Tilton's Hospital years ago, I cheered for kids so much that one mom even told me that every time they drove past the Children's Hospital, her little girl went, woohoo! <laughs> because that's, that's what I did every time she took a bite, which is, it was encouraging and fun at the time. And she didn't have a feeding tube and it, you know, it was enjoyable for everybody at the time. But the problem is if you're only eating for that, then it does contribute to the noise that we're hearing, like you're talking about, Jenny, they're no longer listening to their body and they're listening to themselves. On top of that, it adds its own level of praise. As kids start to say, what if I can't repeat it? What if this just is getting harder and harder? I always think of learning to parallel park, even and someone like hovering over me, ready to praise every step, or, or sometimes they were praising me for something. And I was like, you know, that's not even, that's, that wasn't even a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, So it just adds a whole level of difficulty. Now, that doesn't mean if your child does something difficult, you can't praise them. That doesn't mean you're just ignoring all these difficult attempts. We just want their praise to be in line with everything else that they do. And just a quick note about that. Like what I like to remember in my own family is praising the effort is always better than praising the results because the results can change. We, we all do different things on different days. We don't do our, you know, quote unquote, best work. <laughs> Not that we want food to be considered work, but we don't do the same thing every day. We don't eat the same thing every day. We don't eat the same amount every day. Not, you know, life is variable. That's how it goes. So if you're praising the effort, it's different. You just want to be careful that the praise around food and eating, even the effort, isn't more or out of line with, like it isn't a greater percentage of praise than you're giving other successes in your child's life. So the table is a great example. If you're saying, I love how you're sitting really nicely, you're doing a great job, or I love how you're keeping your hands to yourself and not like, you know, pulling your sister's hair or whatever, it, you know, is going on at your table or math or, you know, your math homework that you did well. As long as it's kind of proportional that, pra- that the praise around food and the efforts around food doesn't exceed the kind of praise amounts that you would give for other things, which I think we tend to do. Kids see through that. And when kids, kids know that we praise things that are new and hard. We praise kids, especially when they do something really challenging. And we don't want to accidentally portray food as a challenge any more than it already is to them. We don't want them to perceive it as work by adding pressure and too much kind of attention that can leak in around food when we praise kids too much. So praise less usually is the advice we end up having to give families who've been in a lot of therapy or been really working to get their kids to eat. We usually have to ask them to back off that. Do less praising. If you do feel like they're, they are in need of praise, just make sure it's in line with the other types of praise and that you're praising the effort, not the outcome. Another thing that is helpful, again, at all family meal, at all mealtimes and all families in terms of the way we talk about food is labels can really backfire and hurt a child's ability to listen to their own bodies. 
And so this is kind of maybe not the most popular mainstream idea, but Heidi and I are research people. We love data. And what research shows us is that when we label things as good or bad, kids listen to it. I mean, they're so tuned into us as adults that they tune into those labels and they tune out what their body might already tell them. And so let's get into what that might mean. If we're labeling foods as junk, clean, dirty, (laughs) whole, bad foods, good foods, healthy foods, unhealthy foods, these labels, which in and of themselves might seem kind of innocuous to us as adults, unfortunately, a child needs to listen to what their body tells them about a food. And while it's much harder for us as adults, because we've got you know, years and years of food noise all around kind of messaging that we grew up with both in our families and in society, kids actually really know how to regulate how much of what they put in their, they usually generally have a really good physical ability. Once their tube stuff has been addressed at the end of all of this, they'll be able to do their own self-regulation, which means they're going to get their energy needs met. And generally foods that are what you might consider or label as unhealthy, they might have a different feeling in the body. They might make a kid feel a different way, but they're never going to feel it. They're never going to notice those subtle differences in their body and how they feel after they eat foods or enjoy taste differently if they're hearing your labels on top of foods. And Jenny, on top of that, we don't always control what kids internalize about what we say, but we do know that they need to be safe and they're doing their very best to stay safe. So to me, two pieces came to mind as you were talking with that. The first one is that when kids are just learning to eat, they're doing what is what feels safe to them. So they might land with just one thing and stick with it for a little bit, and that is their safe food. And if that falls into the category of a bad food, you know, so they might feel like all those crunchy foods, that's a really common early accepted food are those crunchy foods for lots of different reasons. And if we've labeled those junk foods or bad foods and their only safe food is bad, for some kids that might bring up the question, does that make me bad? Right. If the only thing I eat is a bad food, am I bad? Right. And um, this is the first thing that I ate that I wanted to eat that made me feel good that I was doing it for, but that's bad. I heard mom say that that was bad or, you know, I heard dad mention that it, it is junk. That is confusing. It, it's conflicting. So especially with tube fed kids, it's okay. You have to have a foundation of quality and acceptance and autonomy around food, that interest in order for them to get off their tube. And this is one of the things I like about the idea of responsive mealtimes and responsive parenting is part of that is the fine line with accepting kids where they are. If this is what's safe to them, I accept where they are. But part of my job as the parent is to create a safe relationship and a safe pathway for the kids to continue to grow and develop. You know, like if you're still saying to your 16-year-old, I like the way you're sitting still at the table and keeping your hands to yourself, (laughs) you know, then there's some work that still needs to be done. That's a completely appropriate prompt for a two-year-old. I like the way you're sitting still at the table. But if you're doing that still at 14, then some of that growth and maturation didn't happen. You know, you would be disappointed if you were still giving those kinds of instructions to your older child or your 18-year-old or your adult child. Sure. So, but the same thing is true with a lot of a lot of other things, food choices, variety, all of those things we expect to grow and mature. We don't expect them to stay at infancy, but you also wouldn't say to your infant, I'm very disappointed that you're not sitting still. 
but that sometimes is, yeah, totally. But that we accidentally send the wrong message by mm-hmm. our actions. Yeah. Right. So labeling those things, uh, sorry, bring just to bring back to the other point, Jenny, labeling those things can be confusing, but it also leaves you stuck in a place where there might not be enough room for maturation. Yeah. And we get a lot of times the question from people, okay, what, like, how do I, I want my kids to eat good foods. I want them to have a varied diet and I do want them to be, have a nutritionally sound diet. So what we remind people is you make your decisions about what your kids eat at the grocery store. What's allowed in your house happens at the grocery store. We know that forbidding foods backfires. So your kids need to get exposed to all sorts of different foods, even if it might not be your favorite one nutritionally. Kids need to get exposed to all of those foods. And kids learn more about what they should eat by what they watch. And so none of us have a perfect diet, but you want kids to see that you are eating a variety of different foods. And if the majority of the foods that you're eating and providing are relatively kind of in that spectrum that you're comfortable with serving from a nutritional standpoint in your family, then you're good to go as long as they're not being forbidden of having other things or really pushed or pressured to have certain foods in certain groups. So that's how you handle how to get, you know, what you might consider healthier or more nutritionally sound foods as a regular part of your child's life. And kids don't need to be taught this is a big misconception about what foods are healthy or not. They don't need to be taught. They learn it by watching. They learn it by what's around them. And there's a lot of crazy mixed messages out there. So we got to really make sure in our homes, at least, (laughs) that we're trying our best. Nothing's perfect. We got to take a little bit of pressure off ourselves, but that we're trying our best to present food as kind of more of a neutral thing that everybody has a little bit of their own unique relationship with. And it's funny, Jenny, when you're, you've mentioned that we're both research geeks. <laughs> and one of the things we know is that all ages, there's different kinds of research at different ages that kids learn best by watching their parents. Mm-hmm. So if you want them to eat a variety of healthy foods, the very best way to do that is for you to eat a variety of healthy foods. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen that are sitting there with a bag of potato chips and a soda going, I don't know why my kid doesn't eat vegetables. <laughs> right. So I always tell parents, if we know that they will want what you have, then you need to have what you want them to want. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because that's the best way to get, and it doesn't mean it's immediate, no. but we do know that over time, you are their best example. And that's how they get there in the long run, even if it doesn't seem like an immediate answer. And then a quick note about labels, one more quick note about labels. <laughs> it does it extends beyond food. So it also extends to like how you feel about yourself and your body and how yeah. you feel. Like if they hear you feeling guilty about something you ate, that's so confusing for a little body and a little mind. So try to really make sure that we all struggle with our own food and body stuff. It's kind of a universal thing. Don't do it in front of your kids if you can at all help it. They can't make sense of it. It's so confusing. And they have little bodies too. And they are an extension of you. So if they hear that you don't like your thighs or they hear that you're confused about sugar or that this food was a cheat food, then that's going to really affect their ability to love their own body and listen to it accordingly. Jenny, it's occurring to me as we go through all these points that one of the things we hear over and over and over again from families when kids are just starting out, whether they're super selective or whether they're tube dependent and have never put anything in their mouth, is that all of this seems extra and fluffy. And if their kids would just put anything in their mouth, they won't worry about all these other things. However it gets there is how it gets there. And then you worry about the rest of this stuff later. But what we 
know to be true over and over again is the kids where it is lasting and sustainable and becomes more comfortable is where we remember that this is the foundation, that we need these pieces, that this is a really great start and is is what's going to get you there in the long run instead of all these other strategies that give a quick return. Yeah. Um, and that includes the labels, that includes the family meal times, that includes all the things that we've already talked about. It's not magic by itself, but it's the foundation that's going to get you to the next to the next stage. Yeah, and it's a process. Like these are foundational things that are helpful to establish meal times, but they're not things that are going to give you results tomorrow. So just because you like take the pressure off labels or follow the vision of responsibility doesn't mean your tube fed kid's going to start eating tomorrow. It's kind of the foundational work you have to do first so that when they do begin eating, they're not intimidated. They have a healthy relationship with food and mealtimes are safe and, and responsive. And like anything with parenting, you know, most of the things that you do with young children as a parent are long-term, not just in the moment. Although there's a bunch of those too. For sure. Yeah, you do most of the stuff for long-term gain. Yeah, that's so true. So now that we've wrapped up labels a little bit and the importance for kind of any kid, but especially for tube-fed kids and kids with severe feeding challenges, another thing that's really helpful to think about is portion size. So, and this is true for all the kids at the table, <laughs> but when feeding is hard, an average or large portion size can feel scary and intimidating. So one of the things I notice when I go through, just like as a user of Instagram, not as a feeding therapist, is I go through, you know, Instagram and I see people's blog posts and I see pictures of people and the way that they feed kids, obviously, because this is the work I do. I'm always like bowled over, even by some of the most popular accounts at how large portion sizes are. And we know that especially toddlers are, you know, feeding can be really, feeding a toddler can be really challenging. But for kids that have any type of selectivity or kids that are tube fed, a large or even average portion size feels insurmountable. So I like to remind people that if you're going to plate your food for your child, to keep the portion size minimal, if minimal, and even for kids that don't eat at all, a bite or a piece or two on a plate so that there's emptiness, so that it doesn't feel like this huge mountain that they have to climb, but they can try it if they want to, is really helpful. And then this is another place where we talk to families about serving family style. It's a common recommendation for people that have kids at the table because when you serve family style, which isn't always, you know, it doesn't have to be family style, but when you serve people family style, meaning you put all the plates and food in the middle and people serve themselves or point to what they want and you help them if they can't serve themselves, what that does is it really encourages self-regulation. It really encourages autonomy and trust around food. It doesn't feel like the food's being chosen for them or coming at them. And we know that when kids initiate things on their own, it gives that meaning we keep talking about. We talked about it last week in the last episode. But when food is meaningful, when kids want it for those internal drives that we've discussed, it can be really powerful and the results are more lasting. And so family style, again, can be a tool. It's not um, you know hard and fast law here that you have to do. But just remember that generally people really overestimate what a child's size portion is almost universally. I, I think that's advice that we give people time and time and time again when kids start with kids with tubes start to eat. And the parents are like, yeah, but it's not enough. <laughs> and often it is. I think people are often really surprised when they get into portion size information and, and look at what a child size portion is. So just remember, if your kid's not eating anything, it's okay to have an empty plate or no plate. 
but an empty plate that allows them to kind of be interested in what you're eating or perhaps even choose something or a plate with very little food on it so that it doesn't feel overwhelming. Those are my tips for portion size. And just a reminder that it's actually great for everybody at the table. I was recently working with a family that had two kids and the older one loved, loved, loved to eat. And the younger one was tube dependent and wasn't eating anything. And it turned out to be great for him too, because he would eat all his food so, so quickly and be done and want more. So if they started with smaller portions in the beginning and really let him enjoy the food and they had to talk to him about how did it taste and how did it feel going down and helping him enjoy the food as well, instead of just eating it all, like I think many of us do, just without even paying attention to the food. So it actually worked in both ways. If you're worried about kids, if you have other family members who eat too much and don't pay attention to their food in that way, it's actually helpful in both. Yeah, it can, it can slow the pace down a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, you, have to, you have to do something to get more. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's good. If you want more, you can have more usually. But like, you know, you just want it to, the pace is, is nice too, because we do want mealtimes to be mindful and relaxed. And that's not always easy with kids at yeah, the table. Sure. So that gets us into kind of one of our kind of more fundamental points, which is the focus of the meal is on that togetherness. So we want mealtimes to be mindful and we don't want them to feel too hectic, though we can't always avoid it. But the main focus of our meals with kids should be on not the food, but on the togetherness. So I find as a mom that when mealtimes are like (laughs) going wrong, going awry, because they do for literally for everyone and maybe I'm concerned about what someone's eating or what they're not eating, just remembering that the actual goal of the mealtime is to enjoy time together and have opportunities to eat. And you're doing that. If you're sitting down at the table with your tube-fed kid and they're there and you're together, they're going to remember the positive association even if they're not the ones eating food. That togetherness sets the stage. It associates meals with positiveness and attachment. And that is fantastic, a fantastic fertile ground for feeding orally, for eating orally to, to grow in. And so just try to shift your focus and shift your expectations away from the food, the quantity and the nutrients and back to kind of togetherness and enjoying the time together. And part of that, I think we touched on this last time as well. Part of that is just being realistic. If you're a family who's on the go and sometimes your family mealtimes are sitting together in the bleachers watching someone play ball okay. <laughs> or, you know, you eat at a restaurant or you eat out is, is a family mealtime should look like the family that's having it. I love so, that. Be realistic on what you expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, and there's no such thing as a perfect family mealtime. There's so much pressure to get everything right. And when you have a kid that has feeding challenges at the table, oh, on top of all the regular parenting kind of shaming and advice and you know new information about good foods and bad foods and what to feed your kids and what not to feed your kids, when you have the stress of a parent who loves their kid and wants them to do well and overcome their feeding challenge, it can really be wrought (laughs) with a lot of stress. And so I love that. It really, just remember that it's never perfect. And there's no feeding therapist or medical professional or superwoman mom or dad on the planet that has a perfect meal with their kids. Just doesn't happen. There's some that are better than others, (laughs) but being gentle with yourself too is a really important thing and focusing on togetherness. I really hope we've done a great job anyways of talking about what creates a family meal time, a responsive family meal time. If there's any topics that we haven't addressed that you guys would like us to address, please go ahead and email us at thrive at spectrumpediatrics.com. 
and we're glad that you listened today. We'll be back next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week.